cybersecurity is no game, the data from millions of companies and institutions, as well as billions of dollars, are at stake. And yet, effective training to participate in the world of cybersecurity has been gamified. That is, security gamification is proving to be a good way to train up security practitioners who are able to do more than answer a bunch of multiple-choice questions on a certification exam. So that begs the question, is there a tension between gaming and learning? And what does security gamification have to do with security operations on your network? And that's today on the Datanauts podcast. At PacketPushers.net, you can find this in all of our Datanaut shows about infrastructure engineering, or just search for Datanauts spelled like astronauts in your favorite podcatcher. You can follow us at Datanauts underscore show. I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks, and with me is the ultra-secure Chris Wall at Chris Wall. He keeps his red beard inside of a two-factor authentication black hoodie at all times, and our guest today is Evan Dornbush. We met Evan because a listener made the introductions using the magic of the internet. Shazam! If you know someone or are someone who would make a good guest, tweet at datanauts underscore show and hey, let us know. And Evan, welcome to the Datanauts podcast. Who are you, man? What do you do? Yeah, hey, thanks, Ethan. You know, long-time listener, uh, first-time caller. My name is Evan. My company is called Point3. In short, we are a team of hackers in the business of identifying, cultivating, and assessing hacker talent. All right. Well, let's get into this topic of security gamification then, which is uh, really your specialty. So when we talk about gamification, it sounds like we're talking about taking a a serious business process, you know, security, and then turning it into a game. Is that roughly the idea? Yeah, excellent question. So that is how our company and I believe most in the community have been approaching gamification. So in, in terms of serious business processes, you know, we saw two highly frustrating things happening that I'm sure many in the audience can relate to and decided to take some action. So the first is with education, right? How knowledge transfer from teacher to student occurs. Presently, it's, it's almost exclusively driven on a, a test taker being able to regurgitate memorized information to the test giver. So an individual with a degree or a, a litany of certifications doesn't necessarily have experience or interest or aptitude in anything applied. And distilling that capability from academic background is is definitely problem number one for employers. Problem number two deals with the gatekeeping that goes on before individuals are even considered for jobs. Qualified talent is entirely left out of the workforce. I think there's a huge disconnect between what employers need and how human resources identifies that talent. And not everyone has you know, a four-year degree, but for some reason, that's just an absolute deal breaker for certain applicants. So Though the customer-facing experience is presented as fun and it does act to serve serious injustices within the modern workforce. Yeah, the HR filtering on keywords and you know, these sorts of <laughs> things to find you know, the right resume and then kind of going from there it really struck me there when you said people that are very talented being left out of the workforce. So does gamification have a serious aspect to it? Because honestly, Evan, I'm thinking about flying through the Gibson, looking for the garbage file hidden by the plague, you know, like, is that, is that kind of what it's like? Or, or does it have a more of a kind of a serious side to the whole gamification process? Yeah, I mean, I mean, we have a pool on our roof, too. But like, I don't know, look, I, <laughs> like I, everyone am, should. <laughs> I, I am but one individual in the space, right? And so I'm sure opinions differ on this greatly. But I really do think it's mostly a gimmick. But it's a gimmick that works because your audiences are, are just so different. Right. Individuals are driven by games. But what we're finding is so are employers and so are recruiters who control through some like apples to apples data sets. 
You know, like the CISO loves analytics and metrics. So there is an important void that gaming fills. But I do think the underlying core is serious. Again, like how can we identify, assess and grow talent, right? Like how can we place driven, qualified individuals who may not have a college degree into the workforce? How can an employer objectively determine who to promote or determine team-wide gaps in, in required skills, right? These are important questions to address. And for us, it appears the easiest way to get universal buy-in is through gamified learning environments. Okay, but th- there is a really cynical viewpoint out there that says gamification is essentially exploitation, whereas in let's exploit our dumb customers by selling them our gamified product. You're countering that and saying that those people are too cynical? Mm, well... So let's not confuse gimmicky with cynicism and exploitation, because I do think gamification is gimmicky. So there is this great article called Gamification is Bullshit. And I believe the core crux of the author's position is that most companies just half-ass their way to implementation and then market just the heck out of this you know, new, fun, mysterious word called gamification. It's just a new way of selling stuff. And I'm not actually seeing that within the cybersecurity community. I think... There are several vendors who are focused on providing gamified learning platforms, and, and we are one, and each appears to have unique niches of, of true gaming. But you know, a well-designed game has just many aspects that all have to be implemented flawlessly, right? Great games have storytelling and aesthetics and mechanics and community dynamics, right? Great games are fully immersive. And I think if you look back to it, like a pure board game or, or a video game or you know, even the newest ones, right? the folks behind them can still build on decades of R&D and market feedback. And I think as it applies to cybersecurity, it, we're not quite there yet, right? I see the cybersecurity community as pushing their minimum viable product, you know, testing market viability, and then kind of focused on doing one of those things well. But I'm sure as a whole, products will mature and, and will go from exploitation wear to something just more wholesome and, and, and genuine. Yeah. On the other hand, I'm just starting to think about this. As you try to take something as complicated as deep security and being able to truly understand what a hacker is doing and the sorts of exploits that are being done, one of the ways to get that sort of information to someone's head could be putting it into a competitive setting and forcing people to learn these very difficult concepts in an incentive-based way. That sitting with a book or, you know, trying to look at coding examples just may not work for some people, but a gamified approach might work for people. Well, I think there's the difference between gamification where it's just literally we're going to take the same content, but add levels or achievements or XP or something, something that comes from the gaming world, which is boring and, and crappy versus adding, you know, achievements, adding storytelling, kind of like Evan, what you were talking about a little earlier, really going into it saying we're going to build this experience so that you come out of it having learned things. And I'm thinking about, um, I don't know, exploding kittens from the oatmeal. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of funny and trivial and whatnot. But if you had those cards, you know, like, oh, I instead of, you know, the, the exploding cat, it's like, oh, somebody hacked your firewall or something like that. Yeah, it seems like a way that you could make this stuff fun versus... You know, sometimes it feels like all you're really doing is going through the blueprint of a certification matrix. And as you complete each section or each chapter, it's like, congrats, here's your badge. Here's your star. You know, it's like, I don't want the Pez machine experience. I want actually someone to have crafted, you know, a real experience, a real game. As a gamer myself, I've been gaming since I press buttons with my tiny little hands, you know. The other thing I'm thinking about is um, 
Couldn't you also argue like fundraisers and bug bounties? Aren't those kind of games in a way like that there's incentive to it? Maybe they're not like, you know, storytelling and board games and whatnot, but it is gamified. Yeah, I, I think anything that inspires individuals to get off those proverbial sidelines is just inherently a good thing, right? We we all have to start from somewhere. You're not going to start as a ninja, and that's okay, right? You know, whether a, a community is most appealing or getting that high score gets you going or, or like you said, nabbing some, you know, bug bounty loot, right? These are, in essence, just ways to get involved, which, again, I think is just ultimately net positive. Yeah, it's kind of cool, though, because... Well, I guess unless you're really, really good at video games, you're not going to make money on it. At least this way is it's a combination of the art and passion around the technology that you're focused on with like real tangible results. You know, obviously with investments like fundraisers and whatnot, you're building what it is you want to see by voting with your wallet. And with bug bounties, you're, you know, obviously there's the positive outcome of increasing security and awareness and whatnot. But also usually there's a pot of gold at the end of that. So I, I guess it's, kind of, <laughs> it's more cool than just like winning Monopoly and having bragging rights, you know, against your sister or brother or something. It's like actual cash that can be used for hopefully good things. Uh, it's certainly ways you could burn it in a less fortuitous manner. Evan, do you think that there's maybe some resistance or skepticism about the notion of gamification because, you know, the business world is, is very serious. And then there's this fun recreational connotation that comes with games and that we're talking about. Great question. So when we got started, you know, from a marketing standpoint, like our primary audience was the learner. And you can see that as you track our company's social media and, you know, security conference engagement, Right. Come learn something you've always wanted to learn. You know, you went to school for it, didn't get it there, learn it, right? You went for that certification, didn't get it there, come learn it with us. But to your point, like what we're finding, like the bulk of our customer base is actually businesses. It's managers who are creating these micro certs and prizes. They're looking to attract talent external to the division, say drawing from like, you know, IT or customer support or help desk into the security team. And a lot of the feature developments that we've been building into our platform are really just the C-suite looking for metrics and analytics. And that was surprising to us when we started this because we thought knowledge for the sake of knowledge would be the driver in the game, you know, and, and we could do storytelling and aesthetics. But really the the bulk of the development of our platform has been managers and recruiters. So what I just heard there is you found a way to deliver serious value in the form of of metrics, a very significant business, a way that you can measure what's actually happening and give those sorts of results uh, back to the business. So these people have learned, look, here's what they achieved. Here's the metrics that demonstrate what they achieved. And so now you know who these people are, as opposed to the, I don't want to say the normal way, but the more typical way of a certification exam. What about balance? So I'm thinking as you're going through this process, you kind of have to, on one hand, it's the product itself that you're building, you know, the experience and whatnot within the game. On the other hand, it's the education that the attendee or the gamer garners from having gone through the game how do you balance that is it mostly one or the other you know kind of describe gamification in those terms yeah so i think without both you you don't have anything to offer and so our company point three like our roots are in the education side of of that equation so that's where our offering is strongest and we're starting to productize those gamified elements into a platform that has just demonstrably shown folks progressing from like that zero to hero but it's interesting. Like for us, like as we continue to roll out just new product features, the feedback from our very vocal community members is like, that's great. You did X, but you know, now do Y. And so mm-hmm. I think you need both to be viable to just broad audiences that gamified approaches serve. And what's your favorite game? 
Oh man. Uh, I mean, <laughs> off the cuff. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Off the cuff is fine, right? I I grew up on Mist and King's Quest and some of those not time based but more immersive environments where you kind of have to understand everything before you can progress. Oh, absolutely, Mist. The red book or the green or the blue book, right? Great game. <laughs> You know, my takeaway is that fun doesn't equal gimmick. They're not necessarily the same thing. The idea of making the education process to be fun intrinsically with rewards attached can, you know, it makes time fly, it makes things go faster, it makes it more enjoyable, and you can gain all the valuable information. Because I remember when I first learned Python, I used a book that taught me to write these little miniature games, and I enjoyed it because, you know, obviously they're just text-based crappy little games, but it just really made the time fly and, and made a lot of the the terms and the, the syntax really stick. What about you, Ethan? I was really struck by the idea that there are people that have good, strong skill sets that would be an asset to an organization, but they're left on the sidelines because recruiting techniques suck, basically. I've talked to enough recruiters to know that what many of them do is filter resume databases and LinkedIn and so on by keywords. And so you can game the system yourself just by putting the right keywords in, whether you're qualified or not. And other people who don't play those games maybe get missed in some recruiter's database search. And, uh, and all of a sudden, there are companies that are the victims here because the best people for the job or really good people for a job never get the chance because they never percolate up through uh, HR department or recruiting folks database searches. It's, it's, it's a real shame. And uh, I guess the, the thought here for, for me and maybe for anyone who's in a position to be hiring is to think outside the box when you're going after people and come up with some better ways to attract uh, the right sort of talent and don't just cross someone off your list because they don't have some fairly artificial requirement that's met. IT is a different approach needed than uh, a lot of other jobs that you might be trying to hire for. So Evan, I'm curious, the state of security defense education systems, because configuring firewalls isn't really a defensive strategy. You know, I guess it's part of defense in depth, but, you know, it's just kind of the tip of the spear. And there's a lot of popular programs like CEH, the Certified Ethical Hacker you know, they're, they're pretty basic. So the question is, how do new people get educated effectively? So our security defense education sucks, right? And I think addressing this problem is literally <laughs> why Point3 continues to grow, right? The problem with traditional education is that it feels good, right? Right. Your teacher walks you through a solution. Your teacher does the work on the whiteboard. You nod your head in agreement, and then you go out to lunch, right? And you forget everything, right? And so the reason why, right, is because you have a time constraint, right? This is done to get just a whole lot of learners through a whole lot of material all at the same time. But you're not going to retain the information. You're not going to be able to reach the solution on your own because you didn't do the work, right? So yeah. one of the most effective ways to get educated is through a learning model called cognitive apprenticeship. This is how humans have learned since the dawn of time, right? I am the master. I will show you. Now you repeat what I did. Now you do this other problem, which is similar, but not quite identical. Now I'm going to leave you with this hard problem. You know, come find me when you're stuck or done, right? And that's, yeah. that's the whole apprenticeship journeyman approach. And that is way more effective than the traditional style of learning we have today. You know, I did consulting in the enterprise for quite some time. And the first time it was, hey, we're going to talk about this technology or deploy something. I'm always... I want a shadow opportunity. I want to see it first. You know, you can give me a manual and I, I have like an 80% chance of success off of that. But the other 20% are the 
landmines that you don't know about are the caveats. So fully agree. It, it's shadowing and having a mentor is definitely great, especially in the, the technical profession. Evan, uh, thinking about gamification again, I, I was trying to draw uh, some parallels here. So it, when I think about gaming broadly or just you know competitive sports, maybe you've got solo competitions that you versus somebody else, but then you've got team competitions where you're a member of a team that's in competition with another team. So in security gamification, is the emphasis individual skills or team skills? Ooh, so you're asking me to pick a winner where I think two things are equally important. So I'll go with team skills, right? I think we see a lot of talented individuals who are ineffective in the workplace because they just don't play nice with others. You know, we, we work in teams, on teams, as teams. You have to have those hard skills, which are mostly individual lessons, but it is equally important to, to master those soft skills, those team dynamics, the you know, division of labor, resource constraints in, in our training. Like, how do you brief a stakeholder who's not really immersed in the technical details of a particular challenge? So just to drill in on that, then, it sounds like I ended up setting up a bad question because it's not one or the other, individual or team skills. There's both required. There's individual skills that you need to know in the security field. You also have to be able to work in a team context. Yeah, I think the hard science skills are generally going to be individual, but the core product is done as a team. So for an example, we have a challenge where you have to you know, attack the server and the solution you know, is basically writing some custom shell code to you know, overflow you know, a buffer that, you know, and then the system has like ALSR and, and DEP. Ultimately, like you're leveraging ROP and it's complex, right? And so we find that teams will self-divide all the pieces of that challenge. So one person is involved in the networking aspects. One person is involved in the code carving and learning Python and the other individuals working on C and some folks are working on assembly. And each person becomes intricately involved in only his or her task. And the big effort to mission success is integrating it all together. And I think that's how most teams work. Let's switch gears for a bit and talk about one of, I know Ethan's favorite topics, certifications and the exams <laughs> for certifications. And we both have had I know in Ethan's case, he had a compact cert that gained a lot of attention on Twitter. So everyone <laughs> <laughs> was really excited about your compact cert. A lot of old cert. man comments coming out there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, someone dug up like old links from you know the, the, the 50s or whatever when that came out. Anyways, so the problem with certs are it's a pretty binary reward, meaning you either get it or you don't. You do the labs, you read all the blueprints, and the, you, know, the, you review the, the content. It really just doing a lot of memorization. You have some sense of how you're doing, but I guess the confidence isn't quite there because you don't really know what you're going to get, you know, Forrest Gump style until you get to the exam itself. And then it's again, it's just you either get it or don't. Does gamification have any kind of change that it puts on that process through all the, you know, the levels and points and leaderboards and whatnot? Does it, does it fundamentally kind of change that experience for the student? Yeah, I believe it does. Uh, and, and probably for a slightly different reason. Our product is called Escalate. And we use the metaphor in our company that Escalate is a gym, right? We have a variety of challenges over various categories from reverse engineering, vulnerability research, exploit development, traffic obfuscation, implementation, you know, whatnot, whatever interests you, it's you know, probably in there somewhere, right? And we implement points and leaderboards and those gamified elements that, that you mentioned, right? Like badging to motivate, you know, or inspire you to completion. 
but you are the one that has to lift the heavy thing up and down in repetition to build your muscles, right? You have to invest the time. And and that means it sucks, right? Like you're tired, you're frustrated, you struggle. But once you complete one of those challenges, right, you did it, right? You've done the research. And studies, I think, show that you'll be able to retain that information and apply it more aptly, you know, in non-identical situations. And to us, like that is extremely powerful and and that is what's rewarding. Hmm. I thought here about the the rules of the game. So games have rules, yet in the field of security, the rules can change in, you know, in the sense that the target can change and the motivation can change and, uh, you know, the type of exploits can change. You know, so lately, it seems like going after cryptocurrency and, and issuing malware to create remote cryptocurrency miners is is a big deal, which is something that, that, that wasn't there before, wasn't part of the equation. So how does that impact the gamification program when the target is moving? So I think different vendors probably have different ways of addressing this. For us, I think, put on my like black hat for a minute, like I think we just cheat, right? So like, at the core of Escalate, we just built a simple game, right? All of our challenges have hidden flags, and your job is to retrieve them. That's it, right? That That is the game. And so whether it's something that's like embedded in a binary or a stream of packets or sitting on a file system, like... Just to, when you say a flag, you mean like some of the reading I was doing, like there's a very specific hex string. You got to go get it. That kind of a flag, yep. And so uh, the way we built Escalate, those flags are uniquely generated. So multiple people can play the same challenge without having the same exact answer. And an individual that wants to refresh can replay an exercise without having the same exact answer. But at, at its core, everything is find the flag. Because of that, we have a lot of flexibility. As as you mentioned, like various technologies are developed. We can, we can work with cryptocurrency challenges. We can work with ransomware challenges. We can work with denial of service, as long as we've got a flag element in there that shows that someone has mastered the the skill that we're looking to impart. I already want to play these games. <laughs> so, so going back to certification exams, a big component of it is the giant ticking clock in the corner that has <laughs> 30, 60, 90 minutes, whatever. It adds a lot of pressure. It can cause you to, to pick the wrong answer or pick something just kind of out of stress. I would imagine if you're under attack or have actually been compromised, like this is compounded you know you're like oh crap they're in and i've i've had that happen once where someone had hacked into my remote kvm software and i woke up and found my computer in disarray and it it just it sucks Uh, how about how about time when we talk about gamification you know specifically the security games and exercise you're talking about does that factor in is there a limit is it like a giant clock with a buzzer that shoots a you know funfetti explosion (laughs) into the room or how does that work i love funfetti yeah so i agree right every second counts i think time and resource management are i don't know they're just part of what as people we deal with every day so inside escalate the way we've set it up the learner is typically the aggressor and so there's you know more of an emphasis on finesse or task completion Uh, but to address the time-driven stress that, that you mentioned, we have ransomware challenges, right? So the slower you go, the more work you're going to have to do to complete the exercise. Or in our human versus human exercises, it's not really a clock construct that you're racing against. You're racing against an opponent, right? So your motivation is to reduce your future pain. Wow, it's like, it's like chess where you're both playing in real time. There's, there's no turns, man. What, what happens if you win? Is there is there like a loser and a winner? A pedestal or something? Or... Do you have to wear a dunce cap? Like, is there is there real <laughs> is there real like shame for losing or? 
No, I mean, again, like learning is part of the process and you don't want to like <laughs> poop all over somebody that's really trying their hardest, you know, that's as, the, as right as the effort is there. But I, I, look, I, I will say we've done live events where we give out like WWF style wrestling belts to the winners of our Capture the Flag events. And those things travel with some pretty cool stories. I want one of those. Okay, Evan, but with time, the, yes, there's a time pressure aspect for security because you know maybe you're compromised and every second counts. On the other hand, people that are trying to learn maybe need the time to work through a problem so that they can learn something, right? Yes, and that is exactly why our program is self-paced. Um, and I guess going back to that, you know, explore your own world, like mist type environment, there's no, you know, solve level one before you go on to level two, solving level three unlocks this brand new category. It's an open world. I think we have several dozen challenges, but anyone can do anything at any time. And that's because your interests are going to fluctuate, right? Maybe you're not in the mood to do this one thing, or maybe you're just super passionate about a particular subject and want to just roll through all of them. Well, speaking of time, let's go back in time a little bit. Now, I remember being a kid in high school, and I was at a sort of a, like a hackathon competition. It was – we all brought our computers, and we were given a specific tasks that we we had to write a program to accomplish that task or tasks. It, it sort of proves that you can, with sufficient focus, get something significant done in a short amount of time. I mean, we were there on that site in a competition, had X number of hours to achieve the goal. So – does this aspect of, of, of focus enter into things with security gamification? Yeah, I believe it can. So, for example, we we recently engaged with a local community college. Uh, so big shout out to Montgomery College and the student team leaders, uh, Cedric and Ryan. And we literally just dumped a crate full of parts, you know, at their at their feet, microcontrollers and batteries and GSM radios and lots of solder and we just said, hey, like, here's some left and right boundaries, but for the most part, just go do something, right? Whatever your inspiration is, like, here's some general ideas, but just go do. And in the end, I think we got, like, a handful of, like, Pony Express prototypes. But look at what it did for the student, right? Like, they have something they can showcase, you know, on their resume. It it shows to an employer that they have passion. There's something they're they're proud of, right? They built something mostly from scratch. And on an interview, like they can articulate all the working components of it. I think, again, as an employer, like that's way more relevant than like, tell me about your coursework and your GPA. What if it was really high though? No, I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Not me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I would imagine though, that the real value would be knowing that what's being simulated with this capture the flag style learning experience is parallel or as close to the real world of hacking as possible. How would, how do you gauge that? How, how effective do you think it is in these constructed worlds and these constructed environments versus the real world? Yeah. So at the end of the day, like, yes, in a, in a 24 hour CTF or something like there's going to be some contrived storytelling and you're probably not going to have all of your enterprise resources at your disposal. But to me, I really think that those DEF CON style CTFs are just extremely relevant, right? Each team is pretty much told, like, here's your network. Thank you for taking it over. Good luck, right? And I think the audience probably relates to that, right? Very few people build entire environments from the ground up. Most are engaged in expansion or like refactor or maintenance projects. And so the CTFs are relevant, right? Oh, and by the way, that piece of software is mission critical to my organization. So like, 
100% uptime or GTFO, right? Or, <laughs> oh, and that software, like there's a bug in it. Oh, and there's no vendor patch, 100% uptime or GTFO, right? You have no budget to call in help. The attackers are here. It's real time. I still think that's relevant in a modern business environment. I love this idea of apprenticeship or, or the journeyman approach that uh, Evan brought up. That, and he really made a, a, just a very obvious but point that doesn't get talked about a lot. That's how people have learned throughout time. Yes, I know sometimes the, the quickest way I learned something was someone with experience just spending even 10 minutes to explain some complex technical idea to me. And then I got it. And then when I got it, it was so much faster to get the information that way than puzzling over a, a deep technical book that really made it difficult to, to get at the information because you were just fighting through jargon as opposed to working with someone who could put that information in the context of the environment you were working on and make it real to you right then. What grabbed your attention, Chris? Oh, the point about teams and the idea that they can create silos of expertise when, in fact, the, the idea that Evan's trying to come up with is that you become a master or, or a deep-level expert across several different silos. You know, I can recall many group activities where just a small number of people pull on the group. or you know, I'm sure you've had that, too, where it's like the one or two people just do all the work, or maybe they're, they're overbearing or whatnot. Even in my MBA program, it was you, you see a lot of this where just a small number of people take the lion's share of the work just because they're really OCD or whatnot. And I could definitely say like teams can provide some good things, but in this case, I kind of like the idea of that individual work so that you, you have to spend the time to learn the areas that you're weak rather than just emphasizing what you're strong on. Evan, I want to get into how this gamification idea would be turned into an operational impact for the average business. So First question out, I, I've read something that you, you wrote or at least was quoted it saying that the idea that the U.S. is in a cyber war. So can you describe what you mean by that? And then would you say, is this mostly the, a government concern, a military concern, or should the average commercial IT shop be worried about this cyber war idea as well? Yeah, so so how Point3 got truly started as a company is is kind of a funny story. My co-founder and I, our background is in offensive operations within the intelligence community. And, you know, we, we had this idea for this neat product and, and we had no funding. So to pay for the bills, we started teaching these like two and three day seminars on malware analysis and command and control and other weird niche topics. And as the story goes, like one of our brochures makes its way down to the Pentagon and we get called in to hear that position that you described from the director of force readiness and training for the entire military, right? What you have is like a huge concern with no clear bureaucratic solution, right? If you think about war fighting, traditionally it's, it's putting flags on top of hills, right? Capture territory so you have it and your adversary does not, right? Those without the resources or the will to continue lose. But I think today's landscape is is different, right? You know how to make the military give up? Stop the generals from receiving their paychecks by hacking their small credit union, right? Change that order for a pallet of bullets into a pallet of toilet paper, right? And so in the United States in particular, like critical infrastructure, finance, energy, transportation, healthcare, like these are not government owned. So it is an imperative to have a better operator in the average commercial IT shop. 
So, okay, let's drill in on that a bit. If would, would you say that, the, the, again, the U.S. in a cyber war, does that mean the companies that should be concerned, which are not government organizations or not military-related, but maybe our suppliers to those are the ones that should be concerned? Or should you know the average whatever company that's – I don't know, they're supplying an e-learning product or, or whatever – Maybe they're not engaged in the cyber war because they're just – what they do isn't all that interesting to the political side of a country. Yeah, I I disagree with that statement. Just – I understand that people make that argument, but I, I feel like no one is too small to be unimportant. And I think businesses of all shapes and sizes are target. Like I think – I think if you look at those you know, annual Symantec and Verizon breach reports, you find out that the companies that are getting breached and uh, attempted to be breached and successfully breached are more increasingly than not smaller companies, 10 and fewer employees or 10 million or less in revenue. Those companies are targeted because they have the same meaningful data as the largest banks, right? It's just less protected. So to say that you know I'm this average commercial IT shop, I think was the expression we used earlier, like... There's, there's no such thing as average. Everyone's a game player. And again, you, you think the primary target is the data that is the critical decision maker, whether or not a network's going to be attacked, as opposed to, oh, let's see if I can find something here that maybe I could add to my, to my command and control network, my botnet. Yeah, I think, I think command and control and botnets are means to an end. I think at the end of the day, what an aggressor is going to want is data to be manipulated or uh, denied or degraded. I think if you go to read any high school or college textbook for cybersecurity, you have those like all those D words. And I think those are still valid points. And I think companies of all shapes and sizes have that information that is targeted. What about the fact that pretty much, well, not every, but close to every shop I've ever worked in and probably y'all as well has an issue with, I don't know, the kind of the negative attitude, all the complicated requirements, you know, essentially folks that are working on the network and security and other projects within IT are are kind of neutered in a way, especially comments uh, from your side on companies who put the security teams in the corner directly saying, you know, like kind of the scenario you outlined just a little bit ago, you have no budget, everything has to be 100% uptime. It's old buggy code that that you're having to, you know, keep on on the network and then the vendor doesn't patch it. You know, is that... I don't know. Comments on that? What do we do? Yeah, like like rock on, dude, right? Like I say you <laughs> keep putting those security folks in the corner, right? Operations do trump security. And I'm a cybersecurity guy, right? I think this just flushes back to what we talked about earlier, to to training and and working as a team, right? At the end of the day, you're talking about risk management, which is not a black and white do this, don't do that checklist. It's a bunch of humans around a table thinking through a problem. And so to me, like when I hear, and I hear this constantly, right? I hear the security team is like giving me problems, but like if your security team is giving you problems without solutions, right? And they're, they're imposing burdens on engineering and ops, like that's not good, right? Like we're hackers, right? Like to me, like a hacker is like, give me your problem and I'll give you a solution, right? Good hackers understand this. And I think, I think when that, when that paradigm is, is flipped, I think, I think nobody wins. Yeah. Cause I've worked in a number of environments where it's like, well, we're globally not going to use SSH for anything because that's insecure. And I'm like, so what do we do? Like, I don't know, but just don't use that. <laughs> you know, like that's, that's not a very team play. You know, it's just basically that's where I think the, the office of no for innovation puts the no in innovation around security. Like I have no problems playing ball. If someone says, okay, this is a problem and they're from the security team, they come to me and say, Chris, 
you know, we, we just can't do it this way. Totally cool. You're the expert in security. I, I'm fine with that. But but yeah, I, I agree with you, Evan. You have to give me a way out of this pit. You can't just put me deeper in the pit. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know if it answers on to your question, but, you know, there's a, a good anecdote that we have. We have a lot of you hear a lot of folks that are going to like the annual DEF CON, you know, security conference where all the hackers are coming out of the shadows, you know, once a year to descend on Vegas. And and all these individuals are like, oh, I'm going to get a burner phone and I'm going to just disable like all networking because, you know, bad guys are there. But like that's missing the point, right? Like bad guys are everywhere and you're always a target because you're using something with, uh, you know, a processor in it. So, you know, it, I don't know, risk mitigation, right? And, and I usually just wear my full bodysuit of tinfoil and space blankets. That way, I mean, <laughs> walking Faraday cage, that seems to work pretty well. <laughs> Evan, the, this idea of risk management, risk mitigation, though, I mean, there is a there's a trade-off between those two things. You can, and I've worked with some security people who want to try to mitigate every single risk that's there, no matter how small, and can put a fairly onerous burden on operations folks or on application designers that makes it difficult to get a product out the door, uh, whether that's you know code being delivered or whatever it is. Um, as opposed to finding a balance where it's like, eh, there is a risk there, but it's kind of unlikely we're going to be you know, a victim of that sort of an exploit. And so maybe it's just too costly to try to mitigate that where it's going to, on balance, just kind of let it go. I mean, there you feel that there is a you know, a balance there to be struck? Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, everyone should have the same objective, which is – the mission of your organization succeeding. And so anytime you've got like these guys against those guys, you know, like it's just, that's not going to be conducive. I, I think, you know, at the end of the day, everyone's got to kind of get together and, and hammer out their issues. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you, you hedged your answer. Well, very good. <laughs> 110%. Yeah. I, well, we're in the business of busting silos, so I, I can't disagree with that. You know, like there should be no like well, this is us that they they are them. At the end of the day, you're all working for the same revenue. Yeah, Evan, I want to go back to this: the idea of rules are changing. This idea because companies have to deal with that too. Companies have to deal with the, the fact rules are always changing. You, know, for example, I listen to the Sands Internet Stormcast update with Johannes almost every morning, <laughs> and there's really no end to the different motivations behind new exploits and new vulnerabilities that keep popping up. Does that put any specific action item or, or perspective that uh, companies should be considering? So our company motto is, it takes a human to keep us safe, right? And environments themselves are just getting more and more complex. And that complexity gives more and more space for the attacker to operate. And so I think companies deal with that you know, ever-changing landscape in, in two ways. First, they reduce complexity and they use the simplest solution to complete a particular objective. And I think that comes with just experience and repetition. But secondly, companies, they have to ensure that their teams are just stacked with passionate people who are current on the news, right? Listening to, to podcasts and participating and engaging with the community and have established relationships with mentors and with peers. And I think to attract the right kind of people, companies need, you know, one, to instill just that that right culture. But two, I think they have to look for alternative sources of talent. And I think, I think getting back to like gamified platforms, like if you're, if you're only hiring from somebody who has like an Ivy league degree and that that's your gene pool, then I think you as a business are just missing out on some wonderful opportunities. Hmm. And seeing as how I didn't go to an Ivy league school, 
I, I agree with that. <laughs> I, I won't uh, argue against that one. But that also leads me to the idea of, okay, I've got a company and they've got their IT ops bullpen of resources, talent, people, and they want to train them up to be effective security pr- practitioners, you know, either dedicated or that's part of their many hats that they wear. How do you identify the right candidates for this sort of training? All right. So if okay with you, um, let me put my sales hat on for a minute and jump jump right in. So Right on. One of the best use cases for any gamified platform, you know, such as Point Three's Escalate uh, or, or others, right, is in talent identification. We believe that if you give Escalate to everyone in your organization, you do it as a company perk, right? And ninety percent of of the company just won't use it once, and and that's okay, right? Five percent maybe like try it once or twice and then just move on, right? But that remaining five percent of your already onboarded gene pool, right? They are voracious consumers. They're playing nights and weekends and holidays and <laughs> on lunch breaks, right? They're active in the community. They're participating in group events and commenting. And maybe even they're progressing through the challenges, right? Maybe. And that's not really a requirement, right? But you, as, as somebody looking to identify the right candidate, you know, you want that talent to self-identify. And the best way to do it is, is just to track who's got passion. And I think learning platforms are key in facilitating this identification. That's, that's fair. I feel like it's something that would resonate. You get in there, you're like, oh, man, I got I to gotta do they get the shakes. Uh, so so let's, say, let's say you've gone through that process and they're, they're loving the system. Th- then how do you pivot from something simple? You know, I passed a certification exam back in the day, like a very simple objective to measuring something more meaningful like the gamified training approach provides. Yeah, so let me let me frame that differently. I, I think I think there's a misconception that people just need to start doing help desk and then move to network technician and then sysadmin and then you become a programmer and then like boom, you're you're ready to learn security, right? I I don't think you need that 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 learning pathway is certainly one that people take, but you know, I, I think with the gamified training approach it's not only for those who have first passed just this litany of certifications, right? And I think you have to ask, why are people becoming certified in the first place? And I'm going to kind of, I think, answer the question that you uh, insinuated. Most people aren't going for certifications for knowledge, right? They're, they're doing it because companies are, are saying, like, you can't even get an interview without a particular certification, or you can't get a promotion without a particular certification. And I'd like to argue that few people take certification paths for skills. And so if your company or you as an employer, as an employer, like if you're driven by hands-on skills, who can do the work that's required to do the job, there are many great gamified training platforms out there. And I don't think you should let a lack of certifications convince you that you aren't ready. Hmm. Well, would you go so far as to say that popular security certifications like Certified Ethical Hacker or CISSP, are those a waste of time? So IBM boasts of something they're calling the new collar workforce. And it's, in a nutshell, it's office work, but without the traditional you know, degree plus certification pathway. It's a great way to diversify hiring and ensure that folks you know, already have the skills necessary for the job that they're applying for. I do think because IBM is talking about this, I've seen Deloitte and Touche and others talk about this new collar. Like, I think the world is moving in this direction, but I also think change is slow and there are legitimate reasons for certifications, again, particularly if you're trying to like get in the door with certain employers. So I, I don't think it would be helpful to advise Blanket that all certifications are always a waste of time. 
Yeah, but these programs are, I mean, they're going to give you some knowledge, but less of the hands-on has been my, well, it's been a while since I've, I, I was a CEH at one point in time. I looked at CISSP and it looked like it was about an inch deep and a mile wide. It didn't feel like there was a lot of hands-on there. It was more like awareness of all of these things that might be nice to know. Yeah, I, I think I think that's a fair assessment of what a lot of those are. And again, right, the way that we've kind of tackled that is within Escalate, again, it's, it's a choose-your-own-adventure. And so we can track what an individual learner is doing, and so can employers. And so you know, maybe the red team wants you to focus on those red team focused exercises, but maybe the incident response team is is interested in a different subset. So, you know, security is broad and it's the application of cybersecurity is, is broad, right? I'm sure you guys are comfortable with red teams and blue teams and yellow teams and white cells and hunters and, all, you know, it's... Let's pretend that we are, yes. Yeah, I mean, it's, a lot, <laughs> it's a lot of jargon, but it's, it's a nuanced approach to what you want your team to be doing and when you want them to be doing it. And so... I think, like you said, I think I think going going deep on one subject is more valued than being broad across every subject. Well, Evan Dornbush, thank you for being a guest on Data Knots today, talking up security gamification and educating us on that. Now, what would you like to share with folks? Is there a blog? Uh, do you want people to follow you? Uh, are there articles you want to recommend? Anything? Uh, here's your big chance, man. Tell people. <laughs> well, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't say, please check out our website if you'd like to learn more. That website is ittakesahuman.com for more information on how you can get involved with our numerous training opportunities, uh, either as a learner or as a, a scholarship provider for individuals who are looking to take this kind of uh, workforce development approach to life. Cool deal, man. Uh, really appreciate it. And, uh, and shout out to uh, Jacob. What's up, Jacob? Who put us all together so that we could record the show. And that is it for today's edition of the Data Knots podcast. You can reach Ethan. That would be me at EC Banks on Twitter. And I got a personal blog, EthanCBanks.com, about productivity. And uh, most of my writing on tech is at PacketPushers.net. Chris is at Chris Wall on Twitter, and his blog is wallnetwork.com. And for more of our Data Knot shows about infrastructure engineering, nosedive down the rabbit hole. That is packetpushers.net. You'll find us talking about containers and conferences, certs, PowerShell, moving to cloud, full stack engineering, storage architecture, security, and so much more. And until then, may your server lights blink, your secrets be kept safe, and your cables be cleanly managed. My favorite game. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> I care, right? <laughs> we, we care about your game. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs>